0: Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin.
1: I'm Alan. I'm Francis.
0: And I'm Anya,
2: and today we're discussing The Subtle Knife, the second book in the His Dark Materials trilogy, Chapter 4, Trepanning, and Chapter 5, Airmail Paper.
0: Starting Chapter 4, Trepanning, Lyra and Will go their separate ways while in Will's world. Will to investigate more about his father's disappearance, and Lyra to find a scholar who knows about dust. Will makes some inquiries and finds that his father was on an expedition to Alaska about 10 years before the current events during the Cold War. His expedition completely disappeared. No one knows if the group is alive or dead. Uh, Will then also goes to a museum to deal with the fact that he killed a man. Which, a museum seems like a perfect place for that. <laughs> Lyra goes into, I think, the same museum, but at a different time. I don't know, I couldn't keep track of all the buildings I went into. Uh, to try to find a quiet place to consult the alethiometer, she finds some skulls that have a hole carved into their head, the same way Grumman's head did, and first asks about the skulls. Turns out they're about 35,000 years old, and the holes were made to let the gods in. An older man who seems friendly but gives off a creepy vibe talks to Lyra about the skulls, telling her that the practice of carving the hole in your head is called Japanning. He then tries to get her to go with him in the exact way your parents always warned you someone would try to kidnap you. (laughs) (laughs) Lyra Lyra gets away from the man and then goes to meet Mary Malone, or Dr. Mary Malone, ex-nun and badass physicist. Maybe I really like Mary Malone. Uh, They talk about dark matter, Keats, the I Ching, dust, and good and evil, which actually might all be the same thing. Even Keats.
1: (laughs) And then in chapter five, Lyra and Will reunite after their independent research adventures and need a way to kill time until they can travel back to Sagetza under the cover of darkness. Will takes Lyra to the movies and buys her junk food, and it's simply the best thing she's ever experienced. When they get back to Sagatza, they run into a horde of children torturing the cat that originally led Will through the window, and Will quickly rescues it. Pantalaimon? Is it Pantalaimon? Yeah. That's right. Pantalaimon turns into a giant leopard and scares the children away. They take the cat back to the cafe where they are crashing and tend to its wounds. Will reads the letters from his father that he left stashed at the cafe. The letters mention an anomaly, a doorway into the spirit world that looks like a window.
0: Dun, dun, dun. So what were our takeaways from these chapters how did we feel I-, I can go first and just say I mostly just loved it all I-, I really like these two chapters we get they're basically backstory and info dump and it was all great
1: yeah I found it long but as always it was really quite fun to read it it was immersive and I was really interested that the kind of internal concept I had of will is now strongly fixed as a sort of person of color rather than the more abstract concept i had when i first read the
3: book Mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah that's something that stephen king writes about because he's like been heavily adapted and he he talks about like if you've even if you have read something over and over once they adapt it you will often see those characters in your head as whoever the actor or actress was playing the part oh god when you go back to it yeah hermione
1: granger is only ever going to be I nearly he said, Ruth Wilson. It's not Ruth Wilson, but that would have been amazing.
3: (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) Um, In our dreams.
1: (laughs) Curse me, Ruth Wilson. Uh, Emma Watson. Emma Watson. Thank you.
2: It really um, kind of changes the way that you interpret their interaction with the police and his sort of like seething anger with her about how kind of like carefree she is in the way that she deals with um, the adults who might be trying to come after them.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It's a much, the kind of underlying systemic racism aspect to it uh, is super, super, it, it just, it makes it a more contiguous plot. It makes more sense for him to have an inbuilt not fear but distrust for authority yeah. in that in that regard well mm. for the police
2: yeah um i like that chapter 4 is basically just will and lyra doing their like the research of the things that they're trying to figure out but somehow it's still actually interesting even though it is like kind of a big exposition dump and I thought that the switching back and forth between the two of them, it gave it kind of like a, a movie montage feel that actually like worked for me and, and added some dynamic to it.
0: Yeah, I feel like with all the info dump in these chapters, like it feels like this is what Pullman wanted to write about. <laughs> like that we're getting into the meat of what he's trying to do. And so it it even though it is just here is a bunch of information, and some possibly one-off characters that we're never going to hear from again. It's still very interesting, and, like, it was a long chapter, but it went by very quickly when I was reading it.
2: Yeah, and he managed to to make it not just about the info dump itself, but, like, giving Lyra interesting character stuff to do.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, and there's all those, like, subtle world building things that are going on too, where she like goes to buy the chocolate bar. And she's like, I very clearly said, chocolate. Why is it confusing? Why well, I don't understand what your problem is. And so like, we know, I think what's cool about that is that if you're like a fan of the first book and you're coming to this one, especially if you're like a young reader, if you're in the target audience, you kind of have this feeling of like, Oh my God, Lyra is in my world. Like I could bump into her out there. I would understand everything that like I would need to tell her. Like I would be there for her kind of a thing. Like you would be able to be like the perfect guide for a character from Lyra's world. And so it's like very exciting to see all the tiny little hiccups that she runs into because of the differences. Um, I don't like I think that's very cool. It reminds me of like the Dark Tower does something like that, too. Uh, Where characters come into our world and it's like he eats a hot dog and you're like, oh, what's he going to think of the hot dog? It's so amazing. But it's like it's just a hot dog, you know. Um, This is like my favorite thing in fantasy is like info dumps and like all of these like little detail things. This is like in romance, you have to do a sex scene. And in every (laughs) fantasy book, you have to do info dumps. And it is like the point of the book as far as I'm concerned. It's my favorite.
0: I was gonna say how you how you mentioned like people reading it and like imagining how they could help and stuff. This is why in fantasies where people are drag people from like our world are dragged into something fantastical and are so confused, I always get so angry because I'm like, Have you never read a book? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen a single movie? Like right. this is what's happening. Get over it. <laughs> Have you not like anyways.
3: Be genre savvy.
1: Yeah, it's like, I, it's, like, it's like when people go to, you know, it's a zombie apocalypse, and they're like, how could this happen? It's like, well, if you read any zombie apocalypse thing yeah. ever, then you'd have a pretty damn good idea, wouldn't you? It's probably either a disease, or maybe it's aliens, but we're pretty sure it's not going to be the fucking 5G towers now, aren't we? <laughs>
0: exactly. and And everybody knows that you just find a Costco and you'll be fine. Yeah,
1: exactly. Just mm-hmm. you know, pick up that r- pick up the rifle ammo that's lying around everywhere because we've all played Left for Dead and Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It doesn't <laughs> matter that you're in Britain with heavily restrictive gun laws, but no, 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 it'll be fine, you'll find a shotgun. <laughs> yeah.
3: Cricket bats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it works. And <at> a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I missed the pub.
2: Oh yeah. I didn't even think about that. Like Pub culture is way more important for you guys. Like I can't afford to go to bars where I live, so like also there like aren't really bars where I live, so
1: Yeah. I
0: miss English pubs, but like that was a problem I had before not leaving my house.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Should should we we come back
1: here?
2: Should we give the date for context just so all our coronavirus jokes like Oh
0: yes. This it is April fourth today. So things have gotten worse since the last time we recorded.
1: If, if you're listening in the future, good. There's a future.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good news.
1: <laughs> well done. You did it. Sorry, that's probably a bit dark.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. Those are the times we're in. So yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> So what were I think I feel like in our general feelings there we just talked about how much we really liked these chapters. So what a great segue going into what is our favorite parts. Let's gush on them some more.
2: Uh, like you, Caitlin, I really loved Mary Malone the character. Um, and I especially yeah. liked how going into that interaction, the alethiometer told Lyra not to lie, and the like stress that that puts her character under and how it forces her to to like adopt a different strategy to get to what she wants um yeah and also like her in the movies was just so fucking cute i love her her like excitement of it all and how will is just like so jaded and falls asleep
0: (laughs) i uh I also really loved any time she was talking to Mary and, and thought to herself, man, this would be so much easier if I could just lie to her. <laughs> right. I too have had that thought in my life. But actually, my favorite part was very close to that when um, Lyra was asking the alethiometer where she could find a scholar. And almost immediately, the alethiometer is like, this doesn't matter. Help Will. And Lyra was like, what? <laughs> he came here to help me. I'm the main character, obviously. <laughs> and I just really loved that her her endearing arrogance is very good. And I like it. And also how the Lethiometer knew that she wasn't going to listen and then gave her the advice about don't lie to the scholar. Well, like right after saying, you don't even have to bother talking to her. Yeah, <laughs> basically.
3: It is kind of meta, right? That she thinks yeah. of herself in those terms. And it's like, yeah, it, but
0: it makes it makes sense to me for Lyra who, oh no, it's does great. have a sense of self importance.
3: Yeah, and later she like when they're arguing with each other. I think that happens in chapter five, right? Um, or yeah, chapter five when they get back and and she's like, no one talks to me like this. I'm an aristocrat. Like, what yeah. what yeah. is happening?
1: <laughs> oh my
3: god, that's <laughs> so it's good. So
1: annoying. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I just love that about her that she like set on fire by like how dare you! Oh my
1: god, <laughs> like, hey, as an aside, I despise that phrase "how dare you." It's so <laughs> epitomized in her. Like, I'm an aristocrat, <laughs> not that.
3: <laughs> Different movie.
1: <laughs> it's just like, oh my god, you entitled, entitled girl.
3: Uh, I mean my my favorite thing is like. We already talked about it's just basically the info dump is just pure serotonin, you know, it's like rules and fantasy is like my whole thing. I would I would read a whole book of like I have read like just like, you know, rule Bibles of like I'll sit there on a wiki and be like, how does magic work? How what are the geography of the, you know, like the world and all that? I have like an atlas of Middle Earth that I've read cover to cover like several times because I'm boring and like this is my whole thing. I love it. So. so
1: i used to do that as a child i used to just read encyclopedias because they were interesting and then i found out that you can have an encyclopedia of things which don't exist and suddenly they're like <laughs> infinite encyclopedias right so i'll just sit there on the you know game of thrones wiki and be like what's the intricacies of this yeah exactly it's like learning something except it's useless it's great yeah <laughs> <laughs> My favourite part was, uh, again, very specific, kind of continuing my general trend of favourite parts. But I really liked how accurately modern-day Oxford is actually portrayed. The description of the Pitt Rivers Museum was, uh, before they'd even described the back part of it, I was like, that's Pitt Rivers. It must be Pitt Rivers. And then she went into the back chamber, as she said, and it's it's Pitt Rivers. It's got the anthropological check collection. I, I can still remember looking at the shrunken heads. I know where the trepan skull is. You know, I I know these places are, because they're in a real place where you can go, they're very well realised and very well described as well. And right through from that to the perfectly realised character of the porter at the, I can't remember which college they're at, but he behaves exactly as an Oxford porter does. Right through from the immediate suspicion, the overall disinterest, but like sitting there reading a paper, but also like, Paying attention to what's around, but also not that much, but just enough. To the uh, you've got a vaguely reasonable excuse. I'm um, just go, just 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 go. And it was just like that is what a porter is like. That is what the porters at Oxford colleges are like, and they're great. They're brilliant for what they do. But <laughs> it was just it was just perfect. It was exactly right, which makes sense given that Philip Pullman I think lived in Oxford or went to Oxford or both.
0: Both? I think he still lives in
1: Oxford. Yeah, I think so.
2: On a similar note, I really liked uh the way that when Will's trying to fit in, like his way of becoming invisible or like acceptable is to go buy a clipboard <laughs> and then like <laughs> walk around. That was like basically how I got through high school. Although it I mean it wasn't a clipboard. It was basically like if you just hold anything slightly interesting. You will like not be stopped in the hallways like empty cardboard box like random tube of paint like all you need is like one prop and people are just like, oh you have a reason to do what you're doing
1: so, <laughs> like a reptile in your hair maybe
2: oh that was middle school okay
1: <laughs> I was different then
0: yeah and, yeah unfortunately no snakes in high school right too dangerous to have snakes around the teenagers but the preteens
1: yeah. <laughs> fine
3: wow that's like literally that's almost literally like a his dark but that's like the serpent and eden and like yeah 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 puberty snakes
2: <laughs> i can't wait till we get to talk about snake girl dick yeah anyways um
0: <laughs> that's that's at the end of the book <laughs> we don't do spoilers in our book talk so did anybody have anything they particularly did not like I personally didn't. I couldn't really think of anything. I miss Pantalaimon. Like, I miss having him talk and the conversations him and Lyra used to have, uh, especially since I like the idea of being able to talk to yourself that way and sort out what you're thinking and feeling.
2: Yeah, you know, I didn't really notice it until I read your note in the doc, but you're right that Pantalaimon is really missing from these chapters. And I guess, like, part of it maybe is just that when they're in... Our world or Will's world, um, like he can't really be out and visible as much. But you'd think yeah. that like that whole time that she's interacting with Mary, like I even just like a little note of like Pantaliman intentionally kind of like getting himself out of the way so that she can focus better or something, you know, like it would have been nice. You you just forget that he's even there.
0: Yeah, I mean, and there is a very specific craft reason for this because Lyra now has Will to talk to right she doesn't
2: need Mm -hmm. she doesn't need
3: Mm -hmm. to be talking
0: to herself and I get that I just I like Pan so I miss him
3: that's a good one
1: I think I had a I only had a very small uh, least favourite part but I didn't really like the way so Lyra tells um Mary Malone just make it use words just make the cave you know do the words thing and it'll be fine and um dr malone just goes okay and that's like programming's not simple like scientific programming it's it can be a mess it can be crazy but it's not something where you could just be like oh yeah i'll just do that i'll just make it use the words (laughs) If if you as they say twiddle some numbers then what the end result of that will be that numbers were twiddled and that's about all that will have happened so considering how generally actu- accurate the uh, descriptions of academia are, it just that one stood out to me as someone who works in computational like, stuff within science. I was like, yeah, if someone said do that, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Give me a month and I'll look at seeing if that's possible. It might not be possible. We may have to rebuild this thing. It might just not be possible full stop. <laughs> and it, like all the rest of it, like she was rushing for grants. Like, I get that. that There were problems with that, but I get it. But just, it was so wrong. In the same way, I'm sure that anyone who was a particle physicist reading this would have said, oh god, oh no.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was basically the same problem that I had. Um, as I'm not quite as experienced in computational stuff as you are, but yeah, I was just like... <laughs> There's no way that you could do that in like, you know, a couple of months, much less a couple of days. And the funding timeline was laughably short to be like, oh, I'm going to write this grant and then we'll have money in a week. Like, that's not that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works.
1: Yeah, can you imagine that? You don't get your you don't get your grant this round and we're closing you down the week after. No. <laughs> that would never happen. Like a the week
2: other- is the amount of time that you have to turn your grant into like the internal clearing house before it gets submitted to the agency anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 Almost A a token gesture towards the stresses of academia, but don't worry, there's many, many more of those.
3: (laughs) I didn't know, like, any of the academic stuff. I was like, so that all just flew over my head. I was like, of course, that's exactly how it works. Um, But, like, (laughs) when they're talking about the Trepan skulls and how, like, at one point she she says, like, oh, 33,000 years ago is when, like, you know, Homo sapiens started to, like you know, develop society and and stuff like that and use tools. And and I was like, what? That's wrong. That's very wrong. Uh, So I had like that same kind of trip up where I'm like the real world knowledge, like messing up uh, my experience of the novel. And I don't want to say that like, you know, like in Philip Pullman's world, maybe that is how grants work you know, in this version of Oxford. And maybe it was 33,000 years ago that civilization started. Or maybe like in the 1990s, that was like a really good estimate. I can remember when I was like in middle school, they were saying like 11 or 12,000 years ago. And and now it's something more along the lines of like 80,000 years ago or like 2 million years ago, we were using stone tools. Like that's been confirmed, you know, with like radio dating and, and all of that kind of stuff. So like, it's way older. Like they found like 80,000 year old bow and arrows in South Africa and stuff. So like humanity has been using tools for a really long time. Uh, and, and I was just like, what is she talking about? But it's, I don't want to be like, the book is wrong. Like in terms of itself, it's fine that it says 33,000 years. It just kicked me out.
2: I actually had no idea that that was the sort of timeline for humans using tools and stuff. That's really cool.
3: The the only reason I know that stuff is because I'm so interested in religion. And like, if you want to study like Paleolithic religions and stuff, you just start to find out that like we're way fucking older than anyone like ever figured we were. And we were doing religion way before. And like the thinking used to be like. Maslow's hierarchy of needs like first we did farming and then we you know had slaves and now that people are comfortable uh we'll do a religion where we justify the slavery but no like this the religion was the first thing that happened so it's crazy like human beings crave meaning before we crave food apparently
0: this is a big tangent but that makes sense to me because if you're farming or gathering food or whatever before you really understand how you can control it Mm -hmm. would you would think that some higher being is controlling it
3: oh yeah i mean the first time you hear thunder you're like oh (laughs) there's something up there wants to kill me
1: yeah (laughs) that's
0: not
3: unreasonable
0: (laughs) whether whether or not they were looking for meaning I don't know about that, but I can understand where they would almost right away be like, well, I guess we have to pray to whoever sends the rain because we haven't seen that in a while.
3: Exactly, yeah.
1: Just out of so interest, earliest tools that I can find reference to were discovered in 2015 in northwestern Kenya, which had been dated to 33.3 million years old. Wow. They may, they may not have been Homo sapiens. They may have been Homo habilis, which I think is the, uh, the archaic earlier uh, stone age kind of prehumans
3: right right
0: see that's what i was thinking about the 30 to 40,000 year ago mark that that was the first homo sapiens not uh, that that was when we started using tools but i i could be wrong
3: it might be europeans that was the other thing that i thought i was like i don't know when homo sapiens were in europe you know after the first diaspora from africa And like that could be if that's what he's saying, then that is like actually problematic because it's it somehow implies that like, you know, self-consciousness and civilization are fundamentally Eurocentric. Uh, But like, you know, Homo sapiens are older than thirty thousand years ago, there there were there was mixing of like exactly what you're saying, like you know different actual different races of human beings, not like you know subtly different colors of skin and hair texture, but like actually different races existed for you know millions of years alongside each other. But uh, species, yeah, yeah, or yeah, species, yeah. whatever you yeah. want to call it, yeah.
1: There was um, so just again from the brief. Exploration that I'm doing as we're going. Um, Eurasia colonization was between like about 125,000 years ago to 60,000 years ago. So even then, he's pretty off the mark. Yeah, I just um, googled
0: first Homo sapien, and it says at least like 200,000 years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, it they are they definitely they they, they certainly coexisted with like Homo erectus and some of the other strange archaic humans and there was all oh, there was crossbreeding it looks like crossbreeding yeah i mean yep. also it, this comes more generally down to a question in biology of what defines a species and the answer is eh.
3: <laughs> oh thank you scientists <laughs> biologists
1: shrug the, the more it's really funny with um with biology education the further you get into it for a lot of things but particularly for things like species the further you get into it the more the answer kind of converges on eh. Like initially, you said, oh, okay, species definitely can't create viable offspring with each other, except when they can. Oh, but they <laughs> have to be able to maintain a stable population, except for when they don't. Oh, um, is there okay? How 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 much of these things do they have to be before they're a species? Um, I mean that's arbitrary. Oh, so species are arbitrary. Yeah, species are arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it sucks. <laughs>
0: it's uh, it's possible that a lot of these findings hadn't happened when
1: yeah, yeah was yeah. writing these books. Yeah, yeah a lot of these are uh, mid-naughties. Yeah, I
0: have absolutely no idea when we... I mean, I think a lot of those were definitely
2: known by scientists, but they hadn't quite trickled out into the popular consciousness yet, I think, just because, yeah. you know, before the internet, it was a lot harder to get... That type of specialized knowledge.
1: I mean, mid, mid 90s still had internet. It was crap internet. I mean, yeah, just... cr-
0: crap internet.
1: <laughs>
3: Dial was up. it
0: used for anything other than fan fiction? Because that's the only thing I ever
3: used it for. Oh, I mean, scientists used it, but you know, for science. For fan fiction. Right. (laughs) Apparently, that's what you, according to your definition of species, it's all fan fiction.
1: It's all fan fiction anyway. No, well, the the science fan fiction is they write a character who gets a grant Uh. without stress.
2: (laughs) You you know, in the mid 90s, I think funding rates were like, you know, closer to 60, 70% than 15%. So it was Mm -hmm. less fantasy. So obviously,
1: we just need to have fewer scientists, right?
3: I think uh, Isaac Asimov said that the the fiction and science fiction is the part when the politician listens to the scientist.
2: <laughs> okay, that's too oh, real God. right now. Oh, I no. can't, <laughs> I can't.
1: Hi, Neil Ferguson, loving your work. Glad the UK government's finally listening to you.
0: <laughs> so I guess all of these things like the grants and the 35,000 years and all of that, something that we should keep in mind, even though we do like to talk about the real science and the real philosophy and all that, it is a fantasy book.
3: Oh, totally, yeah. 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 And that's what I meant, is like it threw me out, but it's not something that I, I would not be like, this is unrealistic. Like people who say things like that are obnoxious. And, you know, it's like in a fictional frame, like be reasonable.
0: Yeah. And I can understand where I mean, not everybody can be like Tolkien and actually have people wait eighteen years before they start on their journey, right. so he just wants like some <laughs> impetus behind the plot, so Mary, get your shit together right now,
3: right. <laughs> you have a week. this is a ticking time yeah. bomb trope you you need to get on it yeah
0: so so there's that,
3: yeah, that's funny, you're right, uh- that's exactly what it is, you're right.
0: But, I mean, that being said, I can't read books that take place in a theater because people always get it wrong, and i I just can't do it <laughs> so in like a a stage theater, not a movie theater, obviously um so I also understand where you're coming from, where like that little detail is incorrect. Fuck this guy <laughs> um, did we find any problematics?
3: Yeah, I saw the same thing you did the there was uh Eskimo was uh, is like a slur, right? Is that right? I'm pretty I, sure. Yes
0: it is, okay. definitely. Yeah. From what I recall, uh I I didn't look this up even though it just occurred to me that obviously I should have, but I believe that was the name that the white men gave to these people and not mm-hmm. their own name for themselves. And then of course it was the one popularized until I would say about the mid 2000s when we were all like maybe we shouldn't do this.
1: Yeah. Just just growing up in in the uk again quite far away from that area of the world that would be the more at that time that was the more common parlance despite being you know problematic but yeah inuit would be i mean again we're quite far away here it's not something which the the subject is talked about less and so Mm -hmm. in the same manner as the debate between um American Indian versus Native American and I mean even then the internal debate within that about uh, adopted and repurposed words which were originally problematic like it's less of a topic here because it's not a you know this is a, this country is a very very um was colonized a long time prior like if if you really wanted to talk about um you know oppression of native peoples on the uh, British Isles then probably the most recent would be Ireland right right, but, right like right. it's it's just it's just something where the we we're, we're far enough away that it takes a while to filter through the popular culture into um right. into britain so yeah i think it's just of the time rather than out of any particular purpose but yeah he does he does actually uh, as you've written here use inuit in lyra's world but i think that's continuing the general idea that they use alternative words for the same thing right and barrack which is still yeah exactly Mm -hmm. which is is still um you know very valid almost very valid, valid but alternative etymologies and they completely make sense but i think i don't think it's particularly that he's thinking about the uh, structural racism connotations. I think it's just adding to that.
3: Yeah. I think when I was watching the show and, and there you had like a character like Lord Boreal was uh, a black man. um, It like occurred to me and also like, correct me if I'm wrong on this Caitlin. um, But it, it seems to me like in Lyra's world, the magisterium is like Europe, but not like everywhere else. But in the show, It's like the world is the magisterium. Like they, it's a world government. It's not like a European government, or that's how it it seemed to me.
0: Hard to say because in the books, basically the only mention we get of anything that isn't Europe is Lee Scoresby. Mm -hmm. So we just don't even hear about what the magisterium is outside of Europe.
3: Okay, because like I was trying to figure out how you know why would he be. Uh, a black man. Not that I'm like this again, not like this is inaccurate, uh, or, or something stupid like that. But I was like, you know what, if you, if you never, if like, if the Catholic church never broke up, it's kind of an alternative history kind of, you know, thought experiment, then you don't ever get nation states. And we kind of talked about this in the first book a little bit. Um, you don't get like France, Spain, England, because the idea of Europe is like Christendom. It's all one thing. They just speak different languages and race theory comes out of the, like the distinctions between what does it mean to be French? What does it mean to be German? What does it mean to be Italian? There's like this idea that there is a race of Italians, of Greeks, of, and then You get the wider race theory once they, you know, start going out into the world and like, oh, people are different colors. That obviously means they're inferior to us uh, because look at their level of technology versus ours. And then, you know, you get the race theory of like, well, we're completely within our rights to take them over and exploit them and turn them into slaves and all of that kind of stuff. If you never had nation states, you might not get race theory. And so like the assimilation of other cultures into the magisterium might just be like less racially charged and you'd get a character like Lord Boreal with like no problem in that case. And so like in Lyra's world, they use Inuit, which is the correct term that they use for themselves instead of Eskimo in our world because we have race theory and they don't. So that was like my thinking on that. I could be totally wrong. I mean, I'm just building that scaffolding all by myself. So it's not text.
0: Uh, just to correct myself a little bit, Africa is also mentioned in the books because of Mississippi bullshit. Right, right, right. Bullshit, right yeah. um, which, uh, having it be mentioned like that, I guess I had always just assumed that England had gone on its big old colonizing fun time, or wow. whatever you want to call that. <laughs> Was it fun? <laughs> but I I could be wrong. Maybe it's just travelers. Um And also something I should mention is the wider world is talked about a lot more in the sequel.
3: Uh, Oh, the one you're reading?
0: Yes. But again, I still haven't finished it because I just haven't been reading recently. I really should finish it. Um, Yeah.
3: Anyway, I'm not trying to explain away the problem. It's problematic that the word Eskimo is in this book and it should be pointed out. I'm not trying to say like. I'm not necessarily trying to say that, like, it's on purpose and a piece of world building. I just made it into world building in my mind.
1: Definitely author and all. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: The other thing is that, continuing with the way that they talked about, like, African mysticism in the first book, is that they have some talking about uh, indigenous mysticism in this book and how the white man has to come and investigate it. And that sort of thing. (laughs) Which is... I've just, because obviously their mysticism has to have some sort of scientific real base and not like Christianity, whatever. I, that just <laughs> seemed
3: stupid to me. Right? <laughs> where's your book to prove this? You yeah. don't have one. It's not legitimate. That's literally the Europeans as they go. It's spoken by word. What? That's not a real religion. Where's, where's your great literature? This isn't a language. This is a dialect. Yeah. <laughs> oh <my> god. <laughs>
1: Ignoring their history of, you know, preaching in Latin so no one could actually understand it.
3: <laughs> what? That was an accident. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, yes. Yeah, so, um, now that we're done with the general topics, let's dive into science. Science. <laughs> This hey, even though
3: I'm not a scientist, I was going to jump in here to frame this whole Mary Malone thing, how I see it anyway. Um, Cause I said we were going to talk about Galileo again. And like, I did not really give Galileo his due because I kind of don't like him. Uh, but also I, I really don't like the narrative around him uh, a lot more than him personally. I'm sure that he was uh, a stuck up asshole. Like all those people back then. Um, So it wasn't totally his fault. It was just culture. But uh, Galileo is basically responsible for modern science. So you got to give it to him for that, Uh, for like scientific culture as it exists nowadays. Um, Because like before that, there was this whole Aristotelian model of like how to think about um, natural philosophy. And it was completely wrong. And very messed up. It was like it it was all about the intentions of the things themselves. Like why does a rock fall down to the ground? Because it wants it it wants to be with the earth, with the rest of the earth. It is like the earth. And so it wants to be with the earth. It's made of the earth. Why does fire like heat go up? Because the sun is up there and it's very hot. And the heat wants to go up to where the sun is. And so heat rises because it wants to. Everything had like wants inside of it. And Galileo was like, this is idiotic. There's no way to know that. We can't ask fire like, yo, what do you want? and fires like I want to go up there. Like that's that's ludicrous. You have no idea what anything wants. It doesn't want anything. It's a rock. Okay? And basically he said we have to use math. What's what's the guy's name? I just why did his why did his name go out of my head? Oh, Aristotle. Basically <laughs> Aristotle was like math is the devil. And so we're not going to use it. And so math was like not considered serious if you were going to be doing whatever, you know, like science was before Galileo. Um, There was this guy in Roman times named Archimedes. You might have heard of him. He's a famous owl. Um, I
0: was just going to (laughs) say.
3: That's how I know Archimedes. Yeah. But he was uh, an inventor in Roman times. And if you've ever like studied science when you were in school, you probably had this boring stuff about how levers and ramps do work. And the longer the ramp or the lever, the easier it is to lift things or like carry heavy things long distances or whatever. That's all Archimedes. And he was all about math. And Galileo was like, this stuff works. We should use this. And so I had like a couple of quotes here from him that are famous and that like Galileo's whole idea is kind of frames our modern thinking about science and like Mary Malone's Dr. Mary Malone's uh, whole perspective, her paradigm. I think and he says uh, philosophy or nature is written in that great book, whichever is before our eyes. I mean, the universe But we cannot understand if we do not first learn the language and grasp the symbols in which it is written. Like an alethiometer is what he's saying. The book (laughs) is written in mathematical language and the symbols are triangles, circles and other geometrical figures without whose help it is impossible to comprehend a single word of it without which one wanders in vain through a dark labyrinth. So he's like just repudiating people who are like the only real science is figuring out what things like other things and what they want to do. It's like, no, you're in a dark labyrinth. Shut up. Uh, He says measure what can be measured and make measurable what cannot be measured. So math is the only way to know the truth. Uh, Mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe because don't forget Galileo was Catholic and it wasn't like a mistake that he was Catholic. He wasn't Catholic out of necessity or something like that. He was very proudly Catholic and the Catholics. Oh my God. They were so happy about Galileo being a Catholic. It was like anywhere that Galileo went, he was very important in Europe and he would like give a talk and there would be like, you know, some monk or friar with him and it would be like, you know, and now Galileo and and that monk would like, slide out on the stage in his knees and be like but up but up 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 he's Catholic so Catholic like they were very proud of Galileo's Catholicism because it like legitimized their whole thing of like we're intellectuals too so don't get it twisted Galileo was very Catholic can I just
1: have a is there a full rendition of the Catholic Church. oh you know that's <laughs> that was
3: sorry fun. the show is closed now.
1: Oh. Ah, uh, damn.
3: Anyways. One more thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to sing on the podcast. I just get excited about that uh whole thing about like the, the whole narrative around Galileo is like contra historical. Like people are like, oh, he was only Catholic because he had to be, because I'm an atheist, and I really want Galileo to be an atheist too. And that's completely the way that atheism works. And like, no. Just tell the truth, dude. Come on. It's okay. Anyways, I'm done. Sorry. Um.
0: So a question that I put into the notes, because I know nothing about science. So since this book was published, have we moved forward at all in knowing what dark matter is? Do we even still think there is dark matter? Because I feel like I've kind of heard that there has been things, but also maybe we just discovered that we were wrong all along. I, I, I don't know. So... I was hoping our scientists could uh, shed some light on this dark matter. Our scientists
2: who are not actually astrophysicists in any way at all. I said hope at the beginning but of that sentence. Yeah. Hope. Huh. <laughs> Should yeah. I take a stab at it first? And then Francis, you can tell me what you thought of, or what you think about.
1: What? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. I just did some a little okay. bit of research.
2: Um, I basically just asked my astronomer friend, um, so, I guess that counts as research. Um, so one of the <laughs> <laughs> one of the cool things about um dark matter uh is that it was actually discovered by a uh, a woman scientist named Vera Rubin. So, part of me I kind of wonder if like Mary Malone is like a little bit of a a hat tip to Vera Rubin in some way. Right. I don't know. Cool. Um and so basically she Uh, discovered dark matter when she found that spiral galaxies rotated faster um, in their outskirts than um, the mass distribution of regular matter should allow. So like the equations didn't really add up with the um, velocities that they were measuring, um, and so they basically inferred that there must be more mass there than they were able to actually detect Uh, And so the reason why it's called dark matter is because uh, we can't detect it because it doesn't interact with um, light, uh, which is also known as like the electroweak force. Um, And so because sensing light and other types of electromagnetic radiation is basically the only way we can study stuff in space, we have no way to really look for dark matter. And I guess the exception to that is that um, the whole gravitational wave stuff, but that's like very recent.
1: Yeah, basically, let's um, do you want to continue? That uh, or
2: I just have a little go? bit more. Um, mm, so sure. basically, and I see some of this is in there, um, is in what you wrote, but um, the two primary candidates for what dark matter actually is are... The first is called massive compact halo objects, otherwise known as machos, um, that are like big but unseen things like brown dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes. And so they add mass that we can't see. And then the other one is weakly interacting massive particles, WIMPs. So you have your machos and your WIMPs. Um, And so WIMPs
3: are... Fan fiction. Jesus Christ. I know.
2: (laughs) Physicists are really good at coming up with good acronyms um, and names for things. Um, So WIMPs are basically just the word that they came to describe an unknown subatomic particle that contributes mass, but otherwise doesn't interact with everything. Um, And so we do know that, that machos, like black holes and stuff, do exist, but... Um, there aren't really enough of them to make up what dark matter does, so wimps are the best theory for for what is like most of the dark matter out there.
0: Right. I don't. I don't think I ever learned those names, but this sounds almost exactly like what I learned about dark matter in the '90s or early 2000s. So I think it's funny that it seems like it hasn't moved on at all, mm-hmm. unless um, Francis knows anymore.
1: Well. <laughs> So yeah, I, I did I took a little little look into it. I have a mild interest in astrophysics, but who doesn't? I'm also a biologist. So yes, exactly. Exactly. Who doesn't? Astrobiology. <laughs> but that's just <laughs> Um but yeah, basically as far as I can tell, dark matter is weird. Like we don't we can't really detect that it exists as such, but we have plenty of observations as um as Anya mentioned earlier that imply that it probably does exist, such as the spin of galaxies and um similar. Now it's estimated to take up about eighty five percent of all matter in the universe, and about if you include dark matter and dark energy, ninety five percent of all of the uh, energy mass in the galaxy. So a lot. Yeah, so as as Anya mentioned, the dark in dark matter is that it doesn't refre- doesn't respond to electro- electromagnetic radiation at all, and thus we can't actually directly observe it. However, it does react with gravity in the same way as luminous mass, which is non-dark mass, and so it warps space-time, and thus as you warp space-time and light goes continuously straight in space-time, if you warp the time that it's going in, then you end up with bends and weird things, which is gravitational lensing. So if we can see gravitational lensing not caused by any luminous mass, then thus we can assume that some other mass is causing it, mm-hmm. thus dark matter. So we can we can look at places where it may be, because we look at places where things are behaving not as they should be. Um, so the current thinking tends towards dark matter being non-baryonic. So regular matter is composed of baryons, which are um, basically subatomic particles, all the ones that we know of. Um, but maybe there are other ones which we don't know of, such as uh, one of the posited ones is axions, which basically are uh, some some sort of subatomic particle which does a thing. They're not very well defined. Right. Uh, or, as um, as Anya said, wimps. Um, machos are interesting because they, they basically, as far as I can tell, they're conglomerating all the dark matter into one big place and being like, yeah, it all just exists in a blob here. Um, but there, that's kind of fallen out of favour a bit Of people have said, well, that doesn't quite make sense-ish, sometimes maybe. All of this is a bit weird. All of this is a little bit out of the usual. Um, the In terms of the actual books, the dark matter that they're talking about takes this basic idea of we have some undiscovered subatomic particles and then starts combining it with questions more related to philosophy about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly strikes out away from particle physics and astrophysics into something more like metaphysics, which I'm sure Alan has plenty more to talk about.
3: (laughs) I mean, eventually we are going to talk about panpsychism. I don't plan on doing that until uh, the Amber side. Yeah. Side class. No Amber spyglass. Um, Amber side. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that he is, like, purposely um, talking about panpsychism, which is, like, a whole branch of philosophy. Um, But lately, this is kind of cool, I think. Um, There has been, like, some actual real scientific interest in the idea of, like, um, you know, consciousness as a feature of the universe in terms of, like, particles, as, as something that, you know, like the Higgs boson field, um, it's like a particle field that we all exist in. It's what gives us mass. Um, you know, like you, your, your energy and mass in the universe, it wouldn't have any weight. It wouldn't have any interaction with space time if we didn't exist in a Higgs boson field. Uh, not that I understand that, but like, I understand the idea of it, uh, in the same way, like. Uh, there's this thing called the hard consciousness problem that like, how do you account for the fact that we're self-aware of ourselves? Is it just, if you pile up meat in a particular kind of arrangement as in like a brain, does that mean that consciousness just suddenly apparates or is consciousness just like mass, something that exists in everything but can become more dense in certain arrangements and then manifest You know, into the kind of consciousness that we have. In other words, like consciousness is a part of everything in the universe. We exist in a field of consciousness that expresses itself in terms of like a particle field. Uh, And that is something that's actually being taken seriously right now in uh, different, you know, areas of theoretical physics. I
1: mean, of course, to briefly go into more philosophy, only if. Uh, all the people who are around you are not just figments of your imagination. Or, <laughs> right. You, know, you you actually only know that you exist, and even then, you don't. You you just kind of know that you are. Con- your consciousness thinks that it is in fact conscious, and so it could be a demon yeah. whispering
3: it a lie into your mind that you are well, thinking. It could be a hologram, right?
1: But probably probably a demon. I bet it's a demon. <laughs> Bloody demons.
3: That was. Um... Oh, what's his name? uh, Descartes. That was his whole thing. He was like, how do I know it's not a demon telling me that grass is green and sky is blue? I don't know.
1: Maybe it was Descartes telling him.
3: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Is Descartes a demon?
3: Yes, actually, he was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: glad we sorted that one out then. He
3: must be. He's in hell. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I like to think so anyway.
1: (laughs) Oh, this is going (laughs) to (laughs) go... Um...
0: So one thing that I liked about this chapter is, so these books kind of got me interested in learning about physics and such when I was 14 or whatever. Obviously, that didn't, like, stick with me. I just like to read, like, physics for the dumb person books, you know? <laughs> um, uh, And so one thing that I remember reading when I was first reading about the whole alternate world thing that Skrdinger came up with, Was that everybody, all all the scientists, I don't remember if this is accurate or anything like that, but all the scientists involved afterwards were like, oh, man, I wish we hadn't done this. You know, (laughs) like this, I just wish we had had nothing to do with this. This is stupid and weird. And why does this make sense? And I got that exact feeling from Mary Malone in this chapter, who was just like, this is so embarrassing. Why are we doing this? and i I felt like maybe uh, Poland was a little inspired there in the character of Mary Malone also
3: It's
1: sort of like a scientific ennui, yeah, <laughs> you just you're like, why am i why am I doing this again? This seems stupid. I shouldn't do this.
3: <laughs> you might be right, yeah, because the Einstein had that whole thing about uh God doesn't play dice, you know that like things should not exist. Existence is like on or off, right? It shouldn't be sixty percent of a proton is there. Or something it's like no it's either there or it's not right right isn't that right but no it's not right
0: no nope. and that's weird yeah. maybe this yeah. is what what i love about physics the weirdness of it i don't like the math because i'm not good at it and i don't and all that sort of stuff that goes over my head but i do really really love how weird it is because life is weird and i feel like science sh- which we use to understand life, should also be weird then.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't wrong. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Galileo was like, you know, he, he was part of this movement of like mechanical philosophy where like the whole universe was like on off switches like that. And so was Descartes for that matter. He was like the same thing about the mind and, like, you know, like how our consciousness works. But then it's like you said, you get Newton coming along like a hundred or so years later. And he's like, no, it's way weirder than that. You guys, it's like, it's not that, you know, these, uh, these planets revolve around the sun in perfect circles. It doesn't work that way. Like it's, it's weirder than that. They're attracted to each other actually kind of like we originally thought the stone wanted to be with the earth. That's actually not that far off. That's kind of how the moon feels about the earth. Like they kind (laughs) of do want to be with each other. You're not totally wrong about that.
0: I actually like that too, because believing that it's on off is almost the same in a, in a moral sense of believing in good and bad and black and white.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: having, I really enjoy when like science and philosophy and moral stuff all like smoosh together, because again, I don't know. That just makes sense to me. and makes everything kind of weirder. So it makes sense that there would be levels and shades of gray and that sort of thing.
3: It's like this uh, book series would be good for you. Probably like his dark materials.
0: Right, yeah, probably my, might be one of my favorite books ever. Pretty good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you know they're making a, a TV show of it now? Oh,
0: interesting. <laughs> I mean, I am stuck inside a lot, <laughs> so maybe I should uh, give it a look. See, was there anything else in the science section?
2: There was one passage that I wanted to call attention to a little bit. Um, yep which was uh, when Lyra's talking with Dr. Malone and she says, dust, I mean, shadows, dark matter, they want to destroy it. They think it's evil, but I think what they do is evil. I have seen them do it. So what is it? Shadows. Is it good or evil or what? Dr. Malone rubbed her face and turned her cheeks red again. Everything about this is embarrassing, she said. Do you know how embarrassing it is to mention good and evil in a scientific laboratory? Have you any idea? One of the reasons I became a scientist was not to have to think about that kind of thing, um, and I think we mentioned this when we were talking about scientific ethics in book one, um, and maybe in the TV show too. Um, but just that—that that reads as like a very 1990s view of science. And I feel like, I feel like in the past five years, just what I've seen is a lot of um, scientists coming more and more to the realization that uh, all science is political and has ethical questions, like, involved in it that you can't... That basically, like, the idea of science as objective pr- truth removed from all uh, societal and ethical concerns is, is like, an illusion and a myth and that we need to be thinking more about... Um, what our science means in kind of a humanities type way, um, and how it's used. And I think, um, like, especially in the middle of a global pandemic as an infectious disease scientist, like that is, that is super clear. Um, and like one of the people who I follow on Twitter and who's like, kind of shaped my perspective on this a little bit is, um, Dr. Chanda prescott weinstein who actually is an astrophysicist. Um, and she, she talks a lot about specifically like the myth of white empiricism and how like almost all of like traditional Western science, like has this like very racialized perspective and, um, And like you kind of you need a humanities perspective in order to be able to see that and understand it. And I think that's like, you know, I mean, there are any number of examples that we could talk about, but like in terms of astronomy, the the Mauna Kea telescope that they're trying to build on native land in Hawaii right now is like a big touchstone for um, for the ways in which like science is a big white colonial project. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's I just I wanted to to mention that um, because that is something that when I when Mary Malone brought that up, I was like, it definitely feels like a little dated. Um, But also, you know, a lot of scientists, especially like older established scientists today, like very much still feel that way.
0: I honestly think that might be the point of Mary Malone, because she comes from this really interesting perspective where she grew up very Catholic obviously and became a nun, but she was still, we're going to spoilers. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so having, and then decided that that full, uh, that moralism or religion wasn't for her. And obviously we're going to, well, not obviously, but we are going to delve deeper into that later and turning just a science and now she's having it sort of thrown in her face that she can't just be science.
2: Yeah that's a good point point. and so now she has to and, kind of like go back and like fuse those two parts of her identity yeah. like find some way to integrate yeah.
0: them and I I also think it's interesting because I don't picture Mary Malone as white uh, mm-hmm. she, I've, mm-hmm. I've always pictured her as at least half Chinese. I mm-hmm. see um, because I do believe it is mentioned later that her grandfather taught her about the I Ching Mm. And so that mm. and that it was um, sort of passed down to her. So I've always pictured her as being Chinese, and also she just sounds like she reminds me of a, of a, like the culture around a lot of Chinese people that I know. Ooh, who do you think they're gonna cast so, for her? Have they? Um... I don't think they haven't. They did announce like some other cast members, but not who they were playing. I will be hugely upset if she is not Chinese.
3: <laughs> Warning for the already filmed season two Yeah, bad wolf.
0: <laughs> I mean, as long as she's not white, I guess that's fine. But just she's so clearly Chinese to me. I don't know.
3: Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah, I've always thought of her that way too.
0: So I actually like, I, I like that we're getting this perspective from her and how she has to change her mind about how she thinks about science and uh, and, uh how moral and ethics and stuff come into play.
3: Yeah. I think it's like that very on off thing again. Right. Because like the magisterium sees these shadows or dark matter or dust as like evil, capital E, you know, evil. Mm -hmm. And there's like no, there's no need to understand evil. You just have to get rid of it. Right. There's like, if you're in a, in that light switch dialectic of like, it's either good or it's evil there is no reason to investigate either of those. There's only like action just needs to be taken because you already understand it's good or it's evil. It's there's, you know, there's no learning that needs to happen. And so that's just kind of intrinsically anti-scientific. And so that's like, I don't think that good and evil like have much to do with morality is, is kind of what I'm saying. It like science is concerned with morality because like, you know, we're human beings and we need to like, think about how to treat each other and stuff. But concepts of like good and evil are kind of like cosmic and are like light and darkness. And like, they're intrinsic. They're, you know, they're, you you can't negotiate with Satan because he's Satan, you know, like he's, he's evil. You, You can't get along with that.
0: It's funny that you bring up Satan in this conversation. Yeah, I know. We'll, uh, to be revisited in the Ember Spy <laughs> Class. Yeah. So now that we have uh, wrapped up our science section, let's move on to everyone's favorite religion.
3: Everyone's favorite religion. What is your favorite religion? Uh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in chapter four. There's like a lot of stuff in chapter four. Oh my God. Um. I did want to talk about Plato's cave. I feel like there's like two things in philosophy that people know. There's I think therefore I am. And there's Plato's cave usually. Um, Maybe something about a trolley in that cave. But who knows? (laughs) So Plato's cave. You guys have heard of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. This idea uh, Plato was into sadomasochism. So there's these people who are like locked up in a cave and they can't move their head. All they see are shadows and they're like shadows are what we are. Uh, I eat shadows. I talk to shadows. shadows are my friend and they are me. Uh, and then one of them gets loose and he goes outside of the cave and he's like, holy shit, I'm a three dimensional person and there's three dimensional food and there's three dimensional stuff and there's light and there's darkness. I can't believe this. And he goes back in and he's like, you guys will never believe this. And they're like, you're full of shit. We're shadows. We know the truth. You don't know the truth. Um, and that is a lot like the Garden of Eden, if you think about it, where Adam and Eve don't know what sin is. They don't know what good and evil is. They don't know that they're naked. And then once they transgress and they're kicked out of Eden, now they know the real nature of the world and they can't go back. Like you can't unsee the truth is kind of Plato's point. But with the Garden of Eden and in, in terms of Christianity – You want to go back to Eden. That's like the whole point of the religion is to get into heaven and go back to paradise. Um, But Plato says, no, this is great. We're enlightened now. Now we know the truth and we can start to build on this. This is a good thing. Um, and, And so it makes sense to me that this scientific device is, you know, that she's using, even though she's like a little bit embarrassed about bringing Plato into it. Uh, is like exposing the truth of uh, the universe to her on a certain level, and that that's a good thing.
0: So, just as an yeah. aside, like obviously, I really like these books and how they're written. But these like deep dives that we're doing into them, since we keep bringing up things that I'm like, wow, I didn't think this would come up until the very end, and it, I just like it even more now. You know, <laughs> like I, I appreciate the writing there because a lot of the things we've been talking about today, are, I'm like. This is all going to be even more important, you know, later.
3: Yeah, he I think he really knows what like he really understands in a literary way exactly, you know, the subjects that he's bringing up. And he's very nicely folding them into the narrative because you can read this and not know any of this stuff. And I think it works just fine. Like you, you still understand, even if you don't know what Plato's cave is, what that computer is doing and all of that stuff. But there's like a richness to it. And I, I think it's good that he like kind of points out, you know, within the narrative that like, hey, I'm talking about this thing. Like, it's not an accident. Like, I'm doing this on purpose you know, because I'm yeah. making commentary on it. The other thing about Plato's cave there, like you when you're tossed out of um, your ignorance is like kind of going into this nihilism and and that that I talked about before where you could think of like being in the cave as being in the institution, kind of like being in the church or believing in whatever social narrative there is for you. Um, and, and so once you're tossed out of that, once you can't believe in it anymore, um, the, you know, meaning, uh, is like available to you, but it's in a scary existential way. You're like, Oh, what does it all mean? I'm a three-dimensional creature. That's kind of how Mary feels, I think, in this chapter, where she has this very Galileo kind of narrative that she is very happy to be a part of because she used to be in the Christian narrative, and she traded that out for this, you know, scientific institutional narrative of like, you know, truth is mathematical, everything can be measured, Um, this, you know, this thing, this device is going to help me measure it. And then, oh no, like good and evil and all of this weird stuff that I tried to get away from is a part of this. Now it's like you said, you know, now it's all discombobulated. Now she has to like synthesize her past with this information. She can't go back to just believing in the Galileo narrative. She has to live in this new narrative. She doesn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Just like Plato's cave, just like Eden. All right. The other thing that Mary brings up is the I Ching. I'm sure that I'm saying that wrong because I don't speak any kind of Chinese language. It's the Book of Changes is what it means. This the Book of Changes is like one of the oldest magical texts in human history. It's so ancient. It's like written on... Not even like, you know, bamboo stuff. It's like on shells and on, it's like very, 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 very old. I mean, obviously not anymore because you can go to the bookstore and buy it. Like it's on paper, <laughs> but you get what I mean. I and it's buy still the shell popular. That
0: it's on, yeah, it's shells. a new age.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, it, it's uh, one of the Confucian classics. Um, so that like Confucius has like five main texts that he said these are the only books worth reading. You can really forget about everything else. Um, this is one. If you know this stuff, then anything that's not contained in, in these books is really not worth knowing, basically. So, Confucius, really, really a terrible person. So the Just I so Ching
0: know. and his dark materials. And what are the other three?
3: <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, if you try to read the I Ching, it is uh, boring and confusing. It's uh, it's really like reading a bunch of fortune cookies. Um, it's kind of full of aphorisms, and it's that's because the the book itself is really a tool. Um, the The way that it's supposed to work is well nowadays. The way that you do it, you have like these coins, and you kind of throw the coins. And you're going to get a number that um, comes up because of the it's like rolling a dice or something um, that's the point of it is that it's random they used to throw sticks and and that's kind of what they're talking about when they say throwing sticks um anyway you get a number and that corresponds to a page in the I Ching, and then you go to that you know with your question just like you would to the alethiometer And if you think about it in the previous uh, chapter two or something like that, we we met someone in the magisterium who uses an alethiometer and they were like, well, you know, you got these questions. How long until we get an answer? And he's like, listen, it's super complicated. You guys There's like, I got to go through all these books and like, you know, triangulate the meanings of all the symbols and do this and that. This is like exactly that. This it's a book that tells you the truth through the book. This is, you know, like a way to tap into um, the spirits of fate. That was a big thing for Confucius is that uh, everybody has a fate, but you can mess up your fate by not uh, performing the correct ceremonies or not observing uh, the correct attitude towards your life, like not you know, fulfilling your duty in life, that's going to mess up your fate. And the I Ching is a way to check in on your fate. You uh, you you cast the coins, it tells you what page to turn to, and then you do an interpretation on that page with these things that are on the page. It has these symbols that are called trigrams. Uh, if you've ever seen the Korean flag, it kind of has like a yin yang symbol on it. And then it has like these lines, uh, these three lines, a trigram that are around it, four different symbols that are kind of around it. Those are the trigrams of the I Ching. And they mean different things. They have different meanings, uh, according to whether it's a solid line all the way through or whether it's a broken line, um, kind of halfway through the the symbol. And the meanings are like very deep in the same way as like tarot cards or like the alethiometer, you know how, like we described in the first book that Lyra was saying, like she can put her foot down to the next meaning that like the anchor means, you know, something about the sea, but it also means something about like being, you know, steady or every symbol has like a hundred different meanings. The I Ching is the same thing with these trigrams. Like they mean like one of them means father, father, but, but one of them also means like the emperor, uh, but it also means a mountain, but it also means this kind of weather condition, but it also means or it could mean mother or daughter. It could mean oldest daughter or youngest daughter. It could mean. Just on and on and on. And it just depends on what your question is. What is it related to? Is it related to geography? You know, history, interpersonal relations. Is this about love? Is this about your parents? Those symbols mean different things in different contexts, even though they're very simple, just lines and dashes. Uh, And so you can, through that rich interpretation with somebody who is properly trained, like in the magisterium, the guy with with the alethiometer, you can get an answer from it, kind of like tarot cards. You know, it's the same same kind of idea.
2: I do really like the way that Pullman tried to to make the the dust like multicultural, or in the way that it's like, you know, each culture is kind of interpreting the same through, thing through their own lens. It it makes it feel like more universal and um, and more. Like deeper world building. I
0: just, I like that. Like something that's always been with us and everybody found it just in different ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's good.
1: Well, just, yeah, just because the, you know, these ideas go across cultures because I think, I guess as Alan was saying earlier, we all desire knowledge of things that we don't know. And this is something that we don't know. And it's a very essential part of us as humans, Mm -hmm. ergo. We like it ties itself through cultures because it's just this common thread that we all we all want to know about, and we all have our theories.
3: Yep, and and this thing is like very tied to that idea of fate, you know, and which is also appropriate for like the way that all of especially the alethiometer, right? Because what we're seeing more and more is that this is tied into some kind of intelligence that is like. It has a personality. It's not just like scientific, mathematical, yes, no's. It's it's like, hey, you should help Will. You're not the main character. Right. It's uh-huh. like it it has like some kind of plan. Uh and so in the same way the I Ching can get you like back on the path that you're supposed to be on when you're uncertain about what that path should be. Cause you don't want to mess up your spiritual path in Chinese Confucianism, that's going to land you in like, you know, one of the 600 hells or, or something like that. Like you're going to, it's going to be bad for you. You want to be able to come back or, to, you know, rest with the ancestors, um, and be a part of your estate, you know, uh, for eternity. You don't want to like fall off the path and turn into an evil spirit. By the way, uh, this, this kind of magic is called bibliomancy and Christians are way into it. Uh, I can remember being a a Protestant uh, Christian, non-denominational Christian in the 90s when these books were out. And uh, there was this whole idea of like, if you aren't in the same way, like, I don't know what to do, God, should I go to this college or that college or, um, you know, whatever, you would open the Bible randomly with your question in mind. And then, you know, whatever finger, you, you put your finger on a verse and it would be like, this is the answer, right? And it would be be like, like, Horeb begat this one. Exactly. Shit.
2: I I don't know what that means. I was going for one of the begats as well. (laughs) 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 Which it makes it so funny too, that like, I grew up with a, like a very Catholic friend. um, And like at one point we were, we were like 10 years old or something. And we were playing with ruins or something. Um, in the house and her mom found out and freaked out and was like you cannot do this like we're gonna have to get the priest to come rebless the house like if you <laughs> want to do that you need to go outside and do it across the street on someone else's property that's
1: funny <laughs> wow but like
2: there's so yeah i don't know it's
1: the pawn's fine but no divination yeah. no <laughs> To be honest, you'd do really, really well if you found you did a um, a bibliometric analysis of all of the uh, all of the words within the Bible, and then find the most common ones or the most common phrases, and then make you know make a new university named after that. <laughs>
3: oh, there you go. Yeah, that's
1: that's probably <laughs> true. Uh, ah, come to Bagat College.
2: Uh, but which translation would you use?
1: Use all of them, on average. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, King King James, just for the. Uh, <laughs> Ar- archaic sounding you know it's, it sounds like you've got history then Right. <laughs> <laughs> just don't do it in latin
3: Mm-mm. you do it in greek it sounds important then by the way like statistically if you just plop a bible open that is the old testament and new testament uh it's likely to open on the psalms or proverbs and so this actually kind of works out pretty well is that because um,
1: though are they, are they in yeah the middle? that was gonna be
3: by yeah the yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're just in the middle. Ah, it's a normal distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all it is. <laughs> it's statistics. It's actually a
2: uniform distribution, but with biased sampling.
3: <laughs> exactly. Because you're never going to open in Genesis. It's never going to randomly open that way, right? <laughs> yeah. Unless you use, like, yeah, the internet. Yeah, You know, to...
1: I'd, I'd say it's, it's a convolution of a uniform distribution and a normal distribution. Okay, oh okay, fine, anyway. whatever. <laughs> Don't start talking statistics at me and then expect me not to continue talking statistics back at you. (laughs) So.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Touché. My very last thing here is this whole thing that um, we've had since the first book about Lyra's state of mind when she's interacting with the uh, alethiometer, but it, it turns out that that's actually a fundamentally important thing. It's not just a Lyra thing. Uh, This is like something that is required on a certain level to interact with dust somehow. And this reminds me of, even though they bring up Keats, um, it reminds me personally of uh, a concept in Taoism called Wu Wei, uh, which doesn't have any good. And again, I don't speak Chinese, so I'm probably not saying that right. Um, But it uh, doesn't have a good translation in English and it just kind of means like effortless action. I always associate Wu Wei with um, kind of playing a musical instrument. I used to play trumpet uh, for a long time or like, uh, I don't know, like dancing or, you know, swinging a bat or something. The more you think about swinging a bat at the right time, the less likely you are to swing the bat at the ball the right time. Uh, the more you think about like, oh, I need to do my musical fingerings exactly like this with this amount of pressure, the more you think about it, the less the, you're going to screw it up basically. So you want to have like a high level of concentration, but not be very specific about what you're thinking. If that makes sense, kind of use the force, right? Just like flow with whatever and trust in your muscle memory. That's Wu Wei, And, and that's like the opposite of what I was talking about before. Nietzsche and will, where you like very are very focused in the way that will is about like, I'm invisible. And I'm like very intentionally going to carry around a clipboard and I'm going to look busy and I'm going to ask these questions so that I get the result I want. Wu Wei is the opposite where you're very much like open to wherever you're being moved. And and with Lyra, that's like the symbols are like boom, 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 boom through her mind. She's not calling those symbols up. They're happening. That's actually like the point of Taoism is to get Wu Wei, but constantly about everything all the time. If you've mastered Taoism. So you would like know in every situation exactly what to do, but you would know it in a way where you don't have to know. It's just effortless, like swinging a bat at the right time or the correct fingering on a guitar or something.
2: Yeah. I do love the way that Pullman describes it in the text as like going into and coming out of a trance and just like how effortless it is for her. Um, Mm -hmm. It definitely gets that idea across really well.
3: That's all my religious bullshit. (laughs) I'm done. All
0: right. So now it's time for my section here. That's right. The most important part uh dust watch with no added bad puns from francis this time yay
1: Mm, i was thinking it uh
0: so i just wanted you know it's like our dust check-in what do we think dust is now do we think it is dark matter or you know there's a lot of talk in this chapter about dark matter with consciousness is it what powers the alethiometer lyra seems to come to that conclusion in this chapter but I think that is something new.
3: Yeah. Is it? I can't remember. I can't remember. I don't remember either. That.
0: Like maybe she's thought about it before, but in this one she says that this is what powers the alethiometer.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. She yeah. says
0: it very confidently. I
2: think that's more it that she's sort of guessed it before and now she feels mm-hmm. much more certain that that's true. I feel like I'm pretty much on Lyra's page in terms of everything that she's thinking about dust. And I don't know if that's because the book is well-crafted or I'm just very gullible or both of those things (laughs) at the same time.
0: Right.
2: (laughs) But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at.
3: Uh, Like this chapter is what made me think of Nietzsche for this book. This like is so, to me, this is so, Nietzschean, the ideas that they bring in about like the trepanning skulls having lots and lots of dust on them. And we know that adults have lots of dust as compared to children. But then also like they talk about like a chess piece or something like that or, or something else carved from wood mm-hmm. that has a ton of dust, but the piece of wood doesn't. So I it's would like, like
0: to specifically say yeah. that like it doesn't say a lot of dust. It just says that the shadow particles or what have you are attracted to the ones that have intention behind them.
3: Right. And yeah. They're
0: not, I don't anyways, carry on. There,
3: well, it's like comparing the raw material. It's not about the material is what is the point of that. Right. Right. Yes. It's not about, yeah, it's not like wood has it. And then, you know, plastic doesn't or something like that. It's about, it seems to be something about, cause there's like a skull that was like shot with an arrow and that doesn't have the same amount of dust as like, the trepanning skull and so it seems like something in intentional or like crafting and that seems like nichian will to me
1: right see i haven't i i took a bit of an interest with that one just because um the it's all about the this idea of crafting right it's about whether something is made with intention but surely the arrow put into the skull was put in there with intent, <laughs> because you know it, it, I, I'm gonna. I mean, it could have, it could not have been. It could have been an accidental misfiring of a bow into someone's head into their face. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we're <laughs>
0: like it's a. I was gonna say I think these are two different things because, like, surely if Mary was measuring the arrow the way that they had measured the other things same thing it would have the dust attracted to it so i'm sure that skull with the arrow that adult skull has dust attracted to it it's just that the skulls that have had the trepanning done to them have even more so
1: but then yeah it's it's a question of what does what if we're taking it that the dust has consciousness itself Mm -hmm. and has intent then it seems inconsistent and fickle to me um, it's saying, well, no, that's not a that that's not a deliberately crafted hole. You know, they, they, this, a person hasn't crafted this with intent and with uh, artistic talent per se. They've just randomly made a hole in a um, you know in a skull, mm-hmm. oh. but it was entirely the intent. I right. see it what was you're saying. The, but
0: what I'm saying yeah. is that the japanning is done for a completely different intent that would specifically attract the dust.
3: Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I mean, is like, this is like Nietzschean will. So this is like, it's not that, like, I don't inflict my Nietzschean will on you. I Nietzschean will is about, like, yourself. It's like crafting you, like the way that will does. The, you know, like, I'm going to carry this clipboard and look down and be look like I'm busy. That does have an effect on you, but it's because I'm making myself into something. Like, that's Nietzsche's whole thing is like, you can, you know, make yourself into whatever you want to be. Uh, you can craft yourself into whatever you have the will to make yourself into. Uh, and so trepanning would be part of that, right? You would be choosing to have this done to you. I guess it would be like the same kind of thing as like, if you took a scrap of human skin and then a scrap of human skin with a tattoo on it, right. You would expect the tattoo to have more dust. I guess, is is what I'm saying.
0: That is not at all what I'm saying.
3: (laughs) I love we're all on different pages. This is great. What I'm
0: saying is that the book (laughs) specifically says that they carved those holes into their skull to let the gods in, the gods being dust. Those holes are specifically for dust. Therefore, more is attracted to them.
1: But the chess piece is not specifically for right.
0: dust. Right, so that's just a regular amount of dust is attracted to it because of the intent behind us, behind it, behind it. Same thing with that skull with the arrow. I'm sure a regular amount of dust is attracted to it. It's just even more so uh, is yeah, attracted to saying. the trepanning because that was specifically for.
3: It's about dust. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I
1: want a, I want a dust number now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> definitely.
3: <laughs> D
1: equals five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, but Um, I see what you're saying about like uh, uh, Arrow uh, having intent behind it. That's interesting. But yeah, I, I do think it has to do kind of like with your own, with like making yourself. I guess that's the difference that I see between the adults and the children is that on a certain level you are like making yourself, whether you're aware of that process or not. And that kind of gets back into that idea of like, are you institutionalized or have you, like, given up and you don't believe in anything now? Or are you actively making yourself, you know, into your most heroic protagonist self? Um, and and that's See, why the dust is more attracted to adults than uh, children on some level. That's, like, where I'm at with it right now.
1: Yeah, I, I, I get it. It's, it brings up questions like, would a fossilized foot, footprint have more dust than a, I don't know, uh, like it's just interesting how much like like a piece of art done with a foot would probably have more dust than a footprint a fossilized footprint exactly but would that have more dust than a general uh, piece of rock which someone had stood on but not made a footprint right if someone had had worked their foot into the ground and made a footprint would that be different from someone who had just accidentally left a footprint even if they were fossilized in the same way on the same thing so just, can we
2: make a quantitative statistical model to describe <laughs> the amount yes, of dust? It.
1: I, I want a D number.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. W- would hollowed <laughs> ground have more dust because you have consecrated it uh, specifically to yeah. be, you know? Who knows?
1: Yeah, I mean it. It kind of adds up, but it's it's just weird that there doesn't seem to be. It's very hard to conceive of the actual conditions under which something gets more or less dust.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: It's cool.
0: Yeah. So for my thinking, where we are right now is that we seem to be dealing with two different things or at least two sides of something. I don't know. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I really want to concentrate on this because I actually don't think the books very well answer what dust is. So that's why I keep bringing this up. Yeah, um, it's good. So there seems to be the dust that, that Mary is measuring that is attracted to things. Like, like there just seems to be, you know, particles small, (laughs) whatever, the dust. The dust that we could see in in the pictures in in Lyra's world, the gold stuff. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this force that is answering questions and communicating. Right. And we don't know if those are one and the same thing.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. The dust seems like a medium to me. That's the, the way that, you know, like a medium in terms of like water or air or something like that. That's how... I understand it and that there's like a voice traveling through it. That is like the alethiometer is the speaker, if you will, for the voice. Uh, but that could be totally wrong. Like, that's just my understanding from this chapter is like, yeah, that dust is like a medium that is attracted to things with intention and that there's something out there speaking into the medium and she's hearing it.
0: Mm hmm. I, I'm really curious about where where we take this. I don't know, because like somebody else is using the alethiometer or or a different alethiometer, somebody on quote unquote the the other side, the bad side or whatever. And so, but if dust is communicating to Lyra because she has a purpose, because it wants her to do something, then why is it also communicating to this other dude? Mm.
2: That is a good question. Like it's, Mm. it both has its own will, Mm -hmm. but also is like, Obligated to respond in some way, yeah, outside of its own will. Obliged. (sighs)
3: Sorry, (laughs) yeah. The is
2: obligated not a word,
3: it is, it is a word.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's obliged, is the we already had a word for it.
2: Oh, you're just (laughs) mad that America,
1: yes, I'm mad. Okay, I'm real mad. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
2: Whilst I understand you're mad, I also don't give a fuck.
3: <laughs> Touche.
1: So, yeah. it
3: is interesting that it is following. It has to follow rules some for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even if it has an agenda.
0: W- w- and I think we're going to get more answers. Well, no. I think we're going to get more information that actually just confuses this even more. At least it doesn't. <laughs> <make sense. laughs> Good. So... Good. So, um, Good. you know, I'm excited for the upcoming chapters to make it even more confusing. Um, And now we have a new section that Anya just titled, Ask a Brit. And so my question uh, for Francis was that uh, as someone who lives in England, does Alaska seem like a far off place that needs to be explored?
1: Yep. It's really far away. Like, you don't... If you're in America, it's it's not easy to jaunt to Alaska, but there is, like, the infrastructure in place. Like, it's just not... It's, it's far away. It's a different climate. It's... Everything about Alaska is different. And it's just, like, I guess it's not somewhere that would need to be explored, per se, unless it was already unexplored. But it's definitely, yeah, a far-off place.
0: This is very strange to me, because I don't even think of Alaska as being the arctic <laughs> really <laughs> no not at all
1: aside from all the snow
0: i mean like, i don't know it's just not that far away from me
1: yeah it's a lot further away from me <laughs> yeah
0: I, when people say the arctic i i don't think of alaska not at all there's, we, there's not that like,
1: arctic the other arctic well, like scandinavia
3: what do you think I, of
0: further north than alaska
3: yeah yeah yeah
2: well like a most of the people most of the like white people who live in alaska live in like a very small part at the bottom and alaska's fucking huge
0: so no that's true that's true and that's probably what i'm thinking of but i don't yeah, know like you know. it's yeah. it, it is on the same like uh latitude longitude whatever the horizontal ones are latitude um latitude as like parts of the country i live in you know, so it just doesn't seem and <laughs> doesn't seem that crazy north to me. Well,
2: and also, like, aren't there a lot of cruises that go to Alaska that leave out of yeah, the 100. Seattle, Vancouver the city area? city I live in? Yes. Yeah. So it's yes. like it's very easy to get to Alaska from where you are. I mean, not that anyone's on cruises these days, but.
0: Yes, if I wanted to, <laughs> I mean, I would never do this, but I could drive there. It would take right. a while. But right. I wouldn't do it. I don't recommend it.
1: Maybe in the, the s- closest part the closest part of Alaska that I can find to me is about um three thousand eight hundred miles away from me. <laughs> which is up near Kaktovik.
2: But that's actually closer is about a tiny th- island off the north coast. That's closer than you and I are to each other, isn't it? Are we like five thousand miles? Away? Yeah.
0: That yeah, the three thousand um, seems really close to me. Yeah,
1: yeah he's because he's going because over the North it, Pole. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I go over, I <laughs> I go over Greenland and um, some of the islands which I don't know the name of. Actually, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So you go go right over the top, and then you end up in very, very, very north. Yeah, whilst going to say just Cali or something like that is so. If I go to say i don't know sacramento that's 5200 miles
3: <laughs> Turn it- so like to okay so like to an english person though does this seem does this make like will's dad more of a badass that he's like i can like I, yeah i'll go to alaska and show you guys around because like i can do that because this is no yeah. thing to me
1: yeah it's 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 a classic kind of british archetype explorer mm-hmm. um you know ex-military explorer is a is a pretty classic archetype in general and uh britain has a relatively strong history of uh exploring pretty hostile places hence why we have a research base base in south georgia <laughs> right. which i applied to i applied to go and work on it's a brutal place <laughs> yeah so in answer to your question yes it's far away
0: weird mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's- when it went, I, I don't know, this had never really struck me before, but this time when I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, they're exploring Alaska. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why?
2: It, you know, as someone from the continental US, Alaska is like very exotic and far away even for us. So it's funny to me that you don't think it is.
0: Oh,
3: interesting. Yeah, I have family there and I think of it as like the magical place that Jack London made up. So...
0: I mean, I kind of think of it as the second weirdest bit of the United States.
1: It's kind of... The equivalent distance for me would would take me to maybe India or Ethiopia. Wow. Right. Or kind of South Sudan, Gabon, Mongolia. So yeah, it's pretty far.
2: Interesting. Um, okay, so my questions for Frances
1: mm-hmm.
2: are, um, are most cinemas... In the UK or like in a smaller town like Oxford, specifically a single screen, because it made it sound in the book like they had to go to a different movie theater in order to watch a different movie.
1: So basically, no. Okay. Are... I didn't
2: think so. I found it really surprising. I was like, yeah. the 90s weren't that long ago. I feel like they had like multi-screen cinemas
1: Yeah, in um, the 90s. I, yeah, I, I grew up in the 90s in around, you know, not a similar sort of area and yeah it, like multi-screens were definitely a thing there may there are still some small single screens like lo- very local um very local cinemas might be a single screen but nearly all of them even at, at this point were um multi-screen i remember seeing hercules in the cinema on a multi-screen one so no, that was uh when did that get released 94 95 they showed the tv
3: show on. oh you mean the disney movie okay yeah
1: the disney movie <laughs> wow okay
3: <laughs>
1: disappointed
3: <laughs> that's a good quote. Uh,
2: okay so and then my other question which actually is for everyone but especially for francis um have you ever heard of the phrase a rum do before and like is it a common british
3: phrase
1: do you guys want to go first and i'll give the british answer afterwards
3: i don't know what you're talking about you're speaking english i have no idea what you're talking about
2: so in one of the letters to um from will's father to will's mother he says for one thing although he's a bona fide academic his funding actually comes from the ministry of defense he's talking about uh the physicist I know the financial codes they use, and for another, his so-called weather balloons are nothing of the sort. I looked into a crate, a radiation suit if I've ever seen one, a rum do, my darling.
3: Oh, yeah. No idea.
2: I had never heard that phrase before, so I was just curious. Um,
0: I had never heard it. I don't think I'd ever heard it before, but I don't know. It just seems, I don't know, it just seems British.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... Conveniently enough, yes, it is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, is it common? No, it's dated, but yeah, it's it's a thing. Like, it's something that yeah. an
2: old person would say would have said in the nineties.
1: It's something which you'd only you'd get if you were of a certain upbringing. Maybe that would be something more common. Okay. So we get the impression that John Parry is with uh, probably an officer in the Royal Marines. So he was probably, you know, he wasn't grump, like grump material. He was a commander. Um, I don't actually know if it ever states his rank. Um, but yeah, so it it's kind of posh-ish slash, um, yeah, a little bit more, you know, the, the sort of thing that maybe a stuffy academic would say as well. The origins, actually, of it... I did a little, again, looking into things. Uh, Origins are in the 16th century where rum was kind of good or interesting. But then it morphed into, rather than interesting, it kind of interesting? In a more intriguing or odd or strange sense. Hmm. So it's sort of... Calling something a rum do has the same sort of impression as calling someone a slice of fox. There's a certain level of intrigue and respect there. You're saying, this is a good stitch-up you have really you know you, you've there this is this is some, there's some serious goings on here somewhere so rather than saying this is some bullshit you're saying oh you know there's some machinations at work here
3: hmm that's interesting cool
0: also just a reminder that the letters would have been written in the 80s oh that's a good point
3: yeah. Right, so Still, yeah, what yeah, would yeah, he yeah. be in, in his, like, 20s then? So you're talking about somebody from 50s or 60s, born in the 50s or 60s. What do you it's think? Like How old is Will Perry, do you think? Or not Will Perry, but uh, John Perry.
1: John Perry would be what? Um, uh, yeah, if he's he's finished his tour in the Royal Marines, that probably puts him early 30s, mid-30s.
3: Okay, so, so uh, grew up in the late 60s then, right? Posh family. Yeah,
1: so it's it's it it'd still be old it like known but old
3: Mm -hmm. that's so cool i love that that you could like (laughs) kind of pin him down as someone who's a little bit posh and who you know is using an older vernacular that's so cool
1: yeah the actually the in the show you you saw him on tv yeah and you sort of that actually sort of gave the impression of what he what my my opinion of him how i saw him i saw him as kind of yeah white um relative you know relatively home counties accent that sort of thing you know sounded quite like me home counties
2: (laughs) um
1: bedfordshire berkshire no um Hertfordshire, berkshire and the other one i think it's bedfordshire so that's Christ. like I slightly I live I come from the home counties and I live in the home counties.
2: So it's like west of London?
1: North, uh, North. Oh. Um so the home counties are actually quite a few more than I thought. It's all the ones surrounding London. So Buckinghamshire, Hertfordshire, Buckinghamshire is the other one. Buckinghamshire, Hertfordshire, Berkshire, um Middlesex, which is now part of London, Surrey, Kent
3: and Sussex. So if you lived in New York you would call these boroughs.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, uh, they're, they're not boroughs because they're not part of London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a London borough is a very specific uh, place. So, um, Middlesex is now a London borough,
3: mm, mm-hmm.
1: um, where it used to be a county. But yeah, the um, like Hertfordshire is its own county, and that's where I'm from. And I live now in Berkshire, which is, uh, yeah, the, the southwest of London. Ah, Br- British geography, there you are.
3: So. <laughs>
0: So I think that's our ask a Brit section. Uh, if any listeners out there have any ask a Brit questions, feel free to send them in. I think that could be fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can we have theme music?
0: Except that no. we're banking these
1: episodes, Jerusalem.
2: So people, we're we're gonna be like recording before people <laughs> we ever can have hear a special
0: this. ask a Brit episode. Okay. <laughs> we
1: can, well, like the last the last episode, we usually have some like extra stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Items, that's true. Right?
0: Okay. All right, so um, random other things that we wanted to talk about that didn't fit in anywhere. Um, We did kind of bring up the 35,000 years ago with the skulls or 30,000, 40,000, whatever. Um, I just want, I wasn't sure if we were going to bring it up elsewhere. So I wanted to make sure that we did bring it up because it uh, keeps coming up.
3: Mm -hmm. It also, like, well, I can't, that's in the chapter that we're not talking about. Never mind. But we could talk about it next time.
2: Oh yeah. I, maybe we should have mentioned up at the top that we said we were going to talk about three chapters, but chapter four was such a beast that we limited ourselves to two, but whatever people figured that out or they forgot what we promised them
3: <laughs> under
2: delivered on. Um, right. Okay. So I had a couple just like very brief points that I wanted to bring up. Um, and the first was that, this is kind of coming off of a a comment that Alan made during the last episode about how the, 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 I don't know what you call it, like the scope or like the closeness of the narrator wasn't really working for you in some ways.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was paying a little bit more attention to that in these chapters. And I noticed that, um, there are the narrator does seem to be like floating around quite a bit in terms of what its point of view and perspective is, because um, it's definitely like really deeply in Lyra's point of view at points when she's looking at um, the dark matter lab. The narrator talks about and barrack equipment. Um, so that's like clearly from Lyra's perspective. Right. Uh, but then, you know the narrator also like clearly knows a bunch of stuff that Lyra doesn't. Um, And so I guess, yeah, it's something I want to keep paying attention to going forward.
3: Um, It definitely bothers me like how sometimes it's exactly that thing. It comes off as like kind of a joke. Like I mentioned the chocolatel thing Mm -hmm. and it never like, Points that out, but it kind of like tips you off that something weird is going on, but it never like quite explains it because it's like very close to Lyra's perspective, but then with no warning or like any indication in the, in the way that you know there's not like a line break or anything, it will just wildly shift its perspective outside yeah. of her perspective, and it's I that's what he likes to do and that's his style, but it's like disorienting to me.
0: I didn't find it that way at all. I I just found it that you know when we were with Lyra sometimes he would call things the way Lyra would call them in order to mm-hmm. reorient us to the fact that she's in a different world. So mm-hmm. I don't know that that worked for me.
3: It's yeah he, he's very fond of the narrator. It's it's bold like it I don't know but it's like also it it just uh, is one of those things of like. No you you need to be consistent, like it's a pedantic of me, like I know it is, but I can't help it bothering me
0: it, it's just yeah, I don't think it, I, I don't even notice it like it doesn't it doesn't even blip. <laughs> I
2: don't think I would have noticed it, except that because you pointed it out, now I'm definitely noticing
3: that, yeah, he talks about it in that writing book he's he's like a big defender of it he actually, what he says is that people who write in the first person are weak. And so, like... Oh, like I used wow. to
0: hate first person. Like, I just would not read a book if it mm-hmm. was written in first person. I used to hate it. But then I read a whole bunch because it was very on trend for a while. Thanks, Hunger Games. And, um... Oh, that's true. I also do not enjoy first person. Not because I think it's bad or weak or anything. I just don't enjoy reading books that way.
1: Yeah. How about second person?
0: So I've read a couple of second person books. And, again... I. They're not my favorite, obviously. But like first person, I find after the first two chapters, you just don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. And then once. It's just a story. Yeah. If you switch from a second person to a third person, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to wrap my head around this now.
3: That's like yeah. uh, the fifth season books by N.K. Jemisin are in the second person. Like the whole thing is in the second person. Oh,
0: man. It's so long, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, f- no, I'm never reading that. They're really
3: good though Like if somebody was like second person doesn't work I'd be like oh you mean the Hugo award winning Best selling international Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin doesn't work Is that what you're saying
0: I I 100% (laughs) think second person Works it's just not my Preferred state to have my mind In
3: yeah it just helps If you're a genius the way that N.K. Jemisin is (laughs) I wouldn't do it
2: So the other thing that I wanted to to just mention was uh, I wanted to highlight the dynamic between Will and Lyra once they um, get back together. And we briefly talked about uh, the interaction with the police and how thinking of Will as a person of color influences that interaction. But I think um, even removing the police from the equation, um, that scene between them, does a lot to to advance their relationship with each other yeah um because like he's just kind of like stewing and silently mad at her for a long time because that's like he's like a very private um kind of like isolated person Mm -hmm. you know like the one person who he interacts with a lot is his mom and even within their relationship there's like certain walls built up based on her mental illness and both of them trying to protect each other in various ways. So, like, he's not someone who, who's just, like, very upfront with his feelings. Um, and Lyra, of course, is, like, kind of self-obsessed and arrogant and not used to having to really, like, think about other people very much. Yeah. So she just kind of, go- <laughs> you know, is going around uh, really obliviously. And then... Um, at some point she realizes that he's mad at her and they kind of hash it out a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I really liked that scene. I like the character work and I like um, how it kind of ultimately brings them together more, if that makes sense.
0: I love their whole dynamic in this book because like, Lyra didn't tell him what the alethiometer said about how she's supposed to help him.
3: That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like she just was like, "No, that's not happening." And I, I love that about her. Like it's terrible, but I love that about her. I love that she's just continuing to make mistakes because she thinks that she knows what's going on, which is very twelve-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how they're so very different people, and how, but how they sort of like figure out how to trust each other and get along, anyways hmm.
3: Yeah. And they have the lying in common, but it's like you get two liars together and oh, they don't understand each other. Like who yeah. could have guessed that this would happen.
2: Yeah. But also their approaches to lying are very different. Right. You
3: know? mm-hmm. so they also, can't even relate with each other on that front. You know, yeah.
2: it's like minimalist, modernist lying versus like <laughs> Baroque Rococo lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: that that, that awesome. made perfect sense. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that the architecture is a great metaphor.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. And I also, I just, I, I love how Will is such a modern teenager too. Oh, <laughs> he's just like, oh my god, I need all these adults to leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> and, and and Lyra is like, everyone is under my control. <laughs> it's so good. I love them both. I mean, Will's my favorite. I even. But that's just because Will is very relatable to me.
2: Uh, I'm glad. I was like, (laughs) I need to get Caitlin started on how much she actually likes Will and Lyra because she hasn't talked about that enough this episode. And it
0: worked. They're amazing. And I love them both. But Will especially.
2: Okay, well, that's it for today's episode. Next time, uh, we'll be talking about some indeterminate number of chapters, starting with number six, Lighted Flyers. If you like our show, please take the time to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely
0: Literal. That's strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin.
1: I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at
3: Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at M-O-T-P-O-D. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, you can send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Also, ask a Brit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Please.
3: Uh, and remember to always let small and distant children into your
0: lab just in case they revolutionize your research forever.
1: What's the lip part.
2: Oh my God! Um, You could be responsible for more deaths in the UK by distracting Neil Ferguson for like an hour and a half. Don't say these things.
0: Okay, wait. You said that in such a way that like Francis is already responsible for some deaths in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) You could be responsible for even more.
1: I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Right,
3: of course.
1: You know, you could always take the revolutionary step of reading the rest of the books.
2: You know with those middle finger emojis that I've been throwing at Alan? Not, this yeah. is now happening in real life,
1: in your general Sorry, direction. I can't, can't, can't see him, I'm afraid. I have no idea what you're talking about.
3: I did beat the shit out of every level in that game. I was like, yes, I still got it. I I could do this again. Only
1: a minor Valium addiction. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, the service sector. Kudos yeah. to you guys if you're listening. Yeah.
3: Jesus.
0: Oh, as if I'm leaving this in. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a big deviation. That's that's a good point.
1: <laughs> Back to science. Science.
0: How about just say something vague? And then we'll figure it out later. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, yeah. That's a good point. We'll be point. reading That's more stuff next time. Yeah.